Crash Chords Podcast. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And we're going to jump right into it today, because we're dealing with not just a musician today, but a little bit of an artist. He's he's a singer-songwriter, he's a poet, he's a novelist, and he's a painter. Leonard Cohen. Yeah. I'd say not a little bit of an artist. I'd say a lot of bit of an artist. A little bit of an artist. I guess it's all art, but it is true. He is kind of a renaissance man. He's done a lot of things. I'm first aware of Leonard Cohen because of my dad. I think he said he saw him on Johnny Carson, but let's face it, that's how a lot of people discovered a lot of people back then. And then he went out and just spread the word to all his friends. Hey, check out this guy because he's weird, man. Back then, he was a little bit weird. It was the 60s and uh, it seemed like a a lot of people were going in very different directions for art. And in his case, part of it had to do with the content of his music and also because of his voice, uh, which must have leapt off a 1960s television set for its unique qualities. Yes, a very deep voice, a very gravelly voice, at least for that era when a lot of people were doing... They were crooning. Yeah. He wasn't a crooner. This wasn't a crooner. This was a... uh, He was was a whisperer. In fact, he was very well known for the kind of folksy tales he would sing as opposed to just belting out stuff like that. Very similar to your Tom Waits and your Bob Dylans as well. These kind of storytellers... Paul Simon even. Very which is why for it, it's yeah. very interesting, actually, that he got popular for the song Hallelujah, yeah. which so many people in their covers have actually turned into these, you know, soaring, crooning pieces. Well, and yeah. it is really quite a beautiful song. Yeah, you're one of your favorite artists, Jeff Buckley. He has a cover the of late, it. That's, the late, great Jeff Buckley. But his is very sweet and very smooth, almost faint. And, and also very weak at times. It yeah. shows a lot of passion. I'm not saying these things are not in Leonard Cohen's vocals, but it's not the first thing people think of. He There are articles even surrounding the, uh, the work that we're going to be doing, the album that he is still whispering his way to success. Actually, going back to Hallelujah, I mean, one thing, well, I did recognize it growing up. It was it was a great song to hear, a great piece to hear, but recently, we were talking just off the show, uh, it was actually used in the soundtrack for The Watchmen. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the There's a scene in The Watchmen when Night Owl has, has sex, on his spaceship, and it's not a spaceship. It's, it's just a, it's just it's, an airship. It's sort of like a dirigible. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, but anyway. So, and a scene that you would think, you know, someone having sex, it would be kind of passionate and raw. It was kind of more haunting and almost a little unnerving with that song playing over it because it was supposed to feel like this uncomfortable moment for the viewer as well as the people participating. Well, it certainly shows that a lot of people have taken Leonard Cohen's music and kind of sort of transformed it into mm-hmm. it, almost like it has that passion going for it along the same exact track mm-hmm. as all those other things. It's as, it's as passionate and haunting, I think, as I've yet encountered in any artist. And what was curious is that when the track was being used in The Watchmen, in, instead of being a religious experience, which is how most people take hallelujah, it's hard to hear that word and not think, you know, Religion. some sort of Judeo-Christianity connection going on right there. The song is opaque enough in its lyrics that it could actually mean any sort of, like, figure of love. Not just yeah. God, but also women or lovers or things like that. And that was something that was very unique about not just Cohen's music and his lyrics, but his poetry in general, is that he has a way with words to give 
two, three, four meanings to some sections, to some just choices that allows you to, you know, put yourself in different positions listening or reading the same thing over and over again. Yeah, which is a layer to his work that I certainly didn't realize back when I first heard his work, which is going back to my dad. He always, I, I never remember a time where there wasn't this cassette tape sitting around the house, a 1992 album called Future that Leonard Cohen released. And uh, see, we didn't have CDs back then. We, I, All I had were cassettes <laughs> for a certain period of time until the mid-90s when we got our first CD player. But I remember how gravelly his vocals were back then, and although we were actually kind of shocked to see a, a new Leonard Cohen album on the shelves today, because we thought the guy was dead. He's over uh, 80. He yeah, is. he's he's up there. But I should have at least expected that Father Time would have carried out his handiwork. Uh, though in this case, previewing what we're about to get, I think it's aged his vocals quite well. Uh, now another thing that that album Future reminded me of was a certain music style that was actually kind of hard for me to get into back then because of how it held back, mostly for the sake of his spoken word and only barely melodic format. Now part of that is taste, because if you're not into spoken word, then you're not going to be into Leonard Cohen, and that's just the breaks of it, which places me in a very weird position because I like fuller music, but I like poetry and have learned to really love poetry in recent years. But yeah, we should probably mention a few things on his literature background, because although I, I've never read his work personally, it really can't be understated. One of the big things that came up was he became a musician sort of because his literature wasn't very well received. Like, I believe his second novel came out in uh, 66, and by 67 he was making music. In fact, that novel, which was Beautiful Losers, I believe was kind of panned in his native Canada for how graphic it was. Highly sexual, which wasn't always copacetic in the 60s, and until a certain point when it suddenly became copacetic and was all the rage. But one critic actually said of that book that it was the most revolting book ever written in Canada. Then again, Canada has also now given him the Order of Canada, which is the highest civilian uh, honor they can give out. It all comes around. So it may have taken a little while, but he has been recognized for the artist he is. And it's not just the art. He also has delved into not just sexuality, which we brought up twice so far, but also politics, religion, uh, not just through his his, uh, music, but through his other works. Uh, He's talked about a lot of personal issues or different points of view from the personal side. He really likes to delve into the mind of, of people from not just what you expect for the norms, but in a lot of very unusual ways. And it's important to mention also that he's actually one of my people, the chosen people. He is Jewish, uh, yeah. obviously with the last name Cohen, which Cohen, which is like the the origin of the Jews. Um, and so I always thought it was interesting growing up because, like my dad mentioned Leonard Cohen a lot. Also, you know, had his vinyls, and it was one of those things where I always recognized that voice that absolutely iconic voice Steve was talking about before. But his songs didn't always stick out in my head. But I knew when I heard. His voice, that was a Leonard Cohen song. And another thing was that it seemed like he had a lot of Christian influences, Christian gospel music influences in there, which is a little bit of a a disconnect for me mentally. But the truth is, he actually has sympathized with the idea of Christianity. I mean, even though, like Matt started to say, he is a practicing Jew, uh, he actually described his childhood as being somewhat messianic. Um, He was actually told he was a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, which is 
pretty hardcore. And although, like I said, he's a practicing Jew, even today he keeps the Sabbath whole nine yards, there does seem to have been some ups and downs, some falling outs, and even some pop-ins into other religions. Uh, spoiler alert, this album may or may not pose some really big question marks along those lines. But he has said he sympathizes with the idea of Christianity, or specifically Jesus Christ. So whether part of the lore or not, he has said any figure that says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, has got to be a figure of unparalleled generosity and insight and madness. Wow. So that, those, a little bit of weight added. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of weight right there. Yeah. So it shows that he has like more pantheistic kind of concept, I think, surrounding a lot of his works. And yeah, we will be expecting that in the work today. And the album title, if we haven't mentioned it already, is of course, You Want It Darker, which is also the title track, which was last week? Oh no. Tidal Wave was the second track. But Tidal still pretty, Wave is the pretty, second track. But pretty, still pretty early in the album, which I feel like doesn't happen as frequently, at least lately. Yeah. It tends to be like a middle or end thing, Tidal Wave. You know, the funny thing is, I can remember, and well, this is like a long time ago, I can remember a time where I thought it was a title tracks were weird, period. Because really? I didn't see them. Like, I didn't see them. Maybe it was just uh, luck. Maybe it's right. just coincidentally, I, I had say. encountered a lot of albums where it was just like, there's no title tracks, no title tracks. And I was like, oh, this is a title track. It should embody the entire album. <laughs> Like, I no thought it was this really grandiose thing, and then I just realized, no, this is a very common phenomenon. Yeah. And it seems that we commonly find them, like, one after the other on the podcast. <laughs> unless, so, we're, unless we're going after those really weird albums. Yeah. They're really weird. And actually, I would contend that part of this album is really embodied in not necessarily the first track, but right. some other tracks. But you may see it differently. So track one, you want it darker. I do make a big stink about album intros in general, because yes. it's the first impression that an album leaves you with. Um, often, it's very personal. Uh, I made a big stink about last week's, actually, because it brought me back to a moment in film. Well, this doesn't remind me of anything in particular. It's just a beautiful piece of music. A shining example of voice leading, all within the first few seconds. And literal voice leading in this case, because you have a solemn all-male choir of who could say how many members working their way quickly through a crescendo, climax, and to a minor resolution. There's some wonderful anticipations here. I was especially captured by the final stretch between 8 and 11. 11 seconds, just the, the fullness and the completeness of that resolve. And it's, of course, reminiscent of, you know, medieval church work, partly just because of the, the cadence work, but also because of the ca cavernous and cathedral-like reverb. But it's actually almost comically juxtaposed, though, by the thing that comes after it, and that's the electric bass at 11 seconds, because it's a lot more richer, and uh, it's more of an intimate sound. So it's like the cavern. Uh, this giant cavern just became the cavern. $10 at the door, two-drink minimum. <laughs> like, <laughs> Talking to the clubs, <laughs> this the way this track starts and the way the instrumentation more or less progresses through the whole thing is it's got this kind of ambience to it that's interesting. It's cavernous, like you said, but it also feels a little haunted, and oh, yeah. it's also because of those effects. And it should be said that this first track, as well as I believe a few other tracks on the record, were produced by his son Adam, and it's Adam's directly cr credited for the kind of ambient noises we have here. I don't really know how to refer to them well, other could, than that. Well, you can speak about what they are. And maybe that is maybe the, the arrangements as well. Yeah. The organs. Well, he produced the whole thing, yeah. The organs that subtly mm -hmm. kind of appear and just are playing out a couple of ringing notes to sort of complement what the bass is doing. Uh, the simple beat, the very simple beat that's going on, it's like three hits per measure. It's, it's almost nothing as far as a drum section is concerned. Yeah. It's, it's barely I, it's, percussion. It's pretty thin, but I 
do confess the 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 tone and I guess the uh, the ominousness of those opening eleven seconds really did set it off. And the ba- the the bass, as much as I joke about it, it really did blend perfectly. Mm-hmm. I think it was a really nice choice there to you know modernize it just a little bit. But then of course, thirty seconds in, we get Leonard Cohen himself, and yeah, it really is like his voice. It lights up like a hundred cigars and several yeah. casks of single malt. Well, it's all because of the actual level at which he's singing. He's whispering. And he does mostly whispering on this album. He's very close to the microphone, yeah. And that combination between not really projecting so much as speaking to you while being so close to the mic. And the mix itself is is putting his vocals louder and more forefront than anything else on the album. And also, like... At this point, when his vocals come in to play off what Steve was saying, like I absolutely picture him in a dark lit bar, in a black suit with maybe a gray shirt and a black tie. He's got his classic hat no, on. No whites. No, no whites. whites. Lots of smoke Cla- in the Classic room. hat on, a cigarette in his hand. Even if he's not a smoker, I just I kind of picture that. If you take the scenes where um, Ron Swanson's alter ego, the saxophonist, is in those dark clubs in Parks and Rec, it's like that's kind of like old school kind of beatnik singing thing. I, I, I get people that out there who catch that reference. Uh, well, catch your reference. In fact, that might be the only one here who did not catch. That no, reference. Steve doesn't watch. No, Parks I don't. Either. You don't, I don't. Either? No, no, okay, no. I'm not alone. That's why I was just referring. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure plenty of people who are. Um, if you don't like Parks and Rec, you can email me at matt.storm at crashcourse.com. Oh, anyway. You did to yourself for I once. Did it. That's I did. Nice. It's That's fine. Nice. But no, seriously, like I really do get this dark room with this kind of mellow vibe. It's not noir sounding, but it's it's giving noir visualization because That's of what the spoken word nature. Yeah. I was also shocked because I haven't heard anything he recorded for quite some time, probably not since the 80s and the 90s, but it really has been exaggerated, the effects yeah. of his vocals, which is neither a pro nor a con. It's just a, a, a presence, which maybe amounts to a pro in the end. But then you get the chorus. The chorus is actually the first time, um, and it's not too far into the track either. Let's just read the, the opening verse. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, it means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory then mine must be the shame. You want it darker, we kill the flame. And then you have the chorus I spoke, actually more of the pre-chorus really, because there's really just a slight hook later, which I guess that is the chorus. But this magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name, vilified, crucified in the human frame. And when he says magnified, sanctified, I noticed that the vocals in the background actually come forward to double him yeah. in that one moment. And that's a great moment going yeah. on right there. It really adds a lot of weight if thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. Thine and mine. It's actually in the line that he's rhyming, not just at the end. He's, 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 he does speak. It's not an actual iambic pentameter or anything like that. He, the pacing is. He's also off not the singing. Cuff. In many ways, though, you pick up more of the rhyme, funnily enough. Because it's spoken word. Yeah, exactly. You pick up the poetic nature of it, which is interesting because I feel like we've often uh, sort of been thrown to the opposite side of this, where a lot of people will fa- will encounter some measure of spoken word in a lot of the music we're reviewing, and then sometimes it doesn't always get the greatest raving, like, because we, we really wanted a melody there, yeah. or because the poetry wasn't to stand out. But this is an exception because in this case the poetry does stand out. Well, so it feels like spoken word is the correct choice. Right. Well, and also the instrumentation, though, you know... Building a great scene is fairly simple. It's not. It's not overly complex. It's not overly loud, and so the spoken word matches it really well and adds to that scene work that's already being built by the the ambient sounds, which is really shown off when he cuts everything but the brightness, but very high tones with the words "hi nani, hi nani." 
he, he just lets that sort of like erupt from this smoky area. That's to... actually the moment that I thought was the record breaker. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm sure, of course, there's been many more uh, vocalists out there who've gone deeper than that. But it's just because of the rasp, because yeah. of the rumble, it consumes your ears if you're listening on headphones. And I just thought that was a... a it, it's Again, it's a presence. And yeah. I think that's what adds most of the character to this track and the album as a whole. And that, that moment of, of sort of like an expulsion... That, that that word represents, he dives right back in with, I'm ready, my lord. That dive right back in, yeah. it feels like there should be a hiccup. There is no hiccup. It's a great through line throughout to just have two very contrasting bits of music, at least tonally, to work so well with one another. And yeah. we should explain also, Hineni uh, means here I am in Hebrew. And there are a lot of nods to, well, not just Judaism, but also Christianity. And it seems uh, several different religions all throughout this. It seems like more of a, a one person's dealing with the whole concept of, of faith or or lack thereof in instances. Right. And and I think also what's interesting is, of course, he's his name is Leonard Cohen. Cohen is a very common Hebrew last name. And what's interesting for me is that... I never associated with him with religion that strongly, yet for him to have a Hebrew word, and later in this track we'll get to the outro, featuring a cantor, it shouldn't be unexpected. But for whatever reason, it did catch me a little off guard, but I thought it was really interesting. Which is also nice that he's drawing from sort of Catholic musical ideas with the organ work that does yeah. show up. Uh, with choir work in general is really more a Catholic thing. I want to say I don't want to. I don't want to be like specific to say only Catholics did it in their right, churches. Right, right, right. But it's it's something that being used here does promote uh, an ideology that does lead towards Christianity. At least like the it's what I first it. picked up, and yeah. then I started like the more Jewish references started creeping in slowly. Yeah, but I mean with the, the that word plus the cantor later on, I think it's kind of he's using this song to show similarities and differences at the same time. I mean, thinking about of course that Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, right? Because Judaism came first. It's just this idea of showing the overlap here and musically is very interesting to me. And the fact that we're getting references from two different religions right up front, and then the other religious references tend to be Lord, which is what uh, so many different religions use. It, it sort of comes off as pantheistic. He's not really saying one doctrine over another or talking anything specific to that. It's just being spiritual more than religious. Well, even just, you know, with the opening lyrics I read, it's what many people visualize as God. If you are the dealer, I'm, or metaphors rather, if you are the dealer, then I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, then it means I'm broken and lame. And of course, the implication here is that, well, what we believe of you, you know, then it doesn't seem to have panned out right. for him. There seems to be a lot of conflict religiously here. And I think, but it's not necessarily him bashing religion, which we've heard a lot, or or talking down religion. No. It's, it's his conflict with it, yeah. which I think is more fascinating. He says straight up, I mean, I struggled with some demons. Uh, they were middle class and tame. I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. You want it darker, though. That does seem that there's a, a rich amount of animosity going on yeah. here. But I think that's like with anything that you feel like has kind of left you out in the cold. You're going to feel warm to it and animosity towards it at the same time, like fighting with a loved one. And he's 82 years old. He's been dealing with the subject of religion since... For Forever. quite some time. Like, he's been around the block a few times, and he's actually approached topics like this before. So this is nothing new. It would, it would you know, kind of happen that you get a little bit jaded about this sort of sure. stuff from time to time, especially when you 
uh, tried to express it through art. I mean, there was something buzzing around surrounding this album that he actually had said, you know, he's he's ready to go. He's, 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 know, had, he's, enough. Had, he's had enough. But then again, that was also debunked in like some separate interview where he said, eh, I think I was exaggerating. I've always been into self-dramatization. I intend to live forever. So y- you have to take these things with a grain of salt. That in many ways also has to do with just how much you feel you've actually contributed in this life. Sure. You know, and how, well, whether also- you feel it... Should you go to the bitter end, or is there a time to actually just say goodbye? Do are artists obligated to do that, or do they have the right even? Well, I mean, think about we talked about David Bowie's Black Star and how you know that yeah. album. He wrote it knowing he was dying. Like yeah, he, and he was actually working on a follow up that he didn't get to finish because he died. Somewhat different circumstances, right? <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I think also it's it's very common to hear that people of a certain age kind of know when it's their time. And there are people who've said, like, on the day that they died that they knew they were going to, that they knew that they could just tell that it was the end. And I think there's a sense of that here, too. For various reasons. Maybe it's just that you spoke to a generation that might not seem as relevant as it right. used to. You know, or he maybe he because of the political and social atmosphere currently, like maybe he feels like there's it's going for the worse and he wants out. Well, which, we're topping a lot on this one track, but of course these are the things that he brings up uh, later in the album as well. I do have to say, just to get back to the music, I I think that there was a lot of shock value involving. The use of things that I don't hear a lot, such as the terrific choir work, right. such as the blend with electric bass, because you don't often hear this paired, um, and such as his vocals, which we've talked about endlessly. I must confess, though, I think a lot of that shock value did wear off a little bit for me after a couple of verses. Um, I, I think it shows all its cards in some way. And I, musically, it left a little bit bit to be desired for me by the end. But I liked the Jewish cantor. That was a nice touch. I mean, I think I would agree that musically it did show its, all its cards pretty early, but I kind of liked where it was, so I didn't mind that yeah. that much after that. And it, it wasn't a, a full negative, but... Uh, going back to the cantor that you mentioned, his name is uh, Gideon, okay. and I thought that it was a beautiful way to bring back the Hineni. The fact that he sang it like a cantor word, he elongates it, he gives it this melody, he gives it this breath, and I think it's really beautiful and a little odd for the texture of the rest of the track that made it even more haunting. The fact that he drags it out over this haunting ambience really kind of wrapped the track up nicely for me, but I did feel in the middle a little bit it was wearing on. For me, it was additionally haunting because it also felt like the cantor was singing somewhat in the distance. Yeah. Like he, was he wasn't as close distant, to the mic. Distant and, and alone. No, I agree, and I think it goes back to what John was saying about how Leonard is absolutely the focal point, and everything else is kind of swirling around him, and you get a sense of that, and that's for sure. Is and the cantor point. is just simply a reflection of that. So yeah. it felt like, you know, one man screaming out to the world, wondering if there's someone there. Yeah. It was interesting. Track two, Treaty. So this has a similar tone, I felt, or just in terms of you mm-hmm. know, emotional tone, but that's despite actually beginning with a completely different instrument. It begins with a piano instead of a choir, mm-hmm. a piano played by Cohen himself, but it's a little bit, it's it's almost like a 70s ballad mixed with a hymn, and it still has an air of misery to it. I mean, I only say even 70s because I feel like the modern piano ballad was born in the 70s, or at least learned to walk in the 70s with artists like Elton John, Billy Joel, Carol King, uh, even more modern musicians like Ben Folds I think have the roots in that tradition and they have slow songs like this but this isn't nearly as showy as those artists but I will say it has the same soul that's why I make the comparison yeah I think here with this piano and it moving slowly and it's taking its time and I like the place it's in but I do agree that 
it doesn't sound wholly original, but I like the tone of it for this album. I'm on board with it for this track. Well, it does add a few things. Like, it does add the complimentary string section, just sort of a basic continuo, you know, just bum, 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 over and over. And then a solo upright bass, which was almost a little bit of a jazzy touch. So that's a the little bit of the pizzazz that he throws into what is otherwise a very slow and simple track. It was the double heartbeats that got me on this piece. The the double strike of that upright bass of the thump, 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 thump kind of a feel going on that really allowed me to latch on to what the core of this track is, which is he's tired. Mm. That's what the whole track yeah. is. He's tired. This heartbeat is slow, and he's sort of giving up. He He's no longer invested in the conflicts he sees going around him. It's reflected in the lyrics, but it's also reflected in the music itself. Well, yeah, the lyrics themselves kind of reflect on this idea of impossible love, this almost one-sided love or this love that was never meant to be. It goes further than that. It's not just love that isn't meant to be. It's love that has that has run its course and yeah. it's wearing him out. Yeah. And what I like about this is that this love could be religious. Mm-hmm. It could be... A fallout from God. Yeah. Or it could be about a woman or a significant other or something like that. It's just love itself. It's not who the love is directed towards so much as the love and the actual emotion being the worn out part of this relationship. And that's interesting because here we, you can either take it one way as it's um, approachable enough because it's so open, that because it's so non-specific that anyone can relate, or you could say that it's hard to relate because it's so non-specific, because it's just so open. Well, I have a point on that in a moment, but back to what John said. I mean, being that it could be taken as religious or as concerning someone, a person that he loves, just look at the opening lyric as, a, as an example, and also an example of something we mentioned in the last track. I've seen you change the water into wine, and I've seen you change it back to water, too. That line is indicative of, of course, Christianity. We've left... Judaism to some extent because that's pretty specifically Jesus but then it, it could just be a metaphor at the end of the day but still you have to consider the fact that he's shifted the set of metaphors to leaning toward a more Christian you know set right but also that analogy. don't forget that Judaism you know Jesus was Jewish so still referring to Jesus does have some links to Judaism true but that's a, all right that's a that's a point I'll take that yeah. but that, well, that's no, not part of the. That's Let's, not part of the Jewish tradition. That right, 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 right. That Here, he me, was the Messiah. Yeah. Let, let me take these lines. I've seen you change water into wine, meaning we we had nothing. We had nothing but water. We had nothing but the basics, and we made something more of it. And then we took that something more and kind of pissed it all away. Next line. I sit at your table every night. I try, but I just don't get high with you. If you want to keep on the Jesus metaphors, I mean, Last Supper, very obvious table reference. But at the same time, it's that person across the table from you, that that, that husband or so wife or something like that. We don't hit, we're not in the same place anymore. Like, you can take it both ways. And if you really want to dissect it, it's almost like he's using religious metaphors to be both 
and I like this. He I, does it, really walk it's... the line pretty carefully from line to line to line. I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. And I initially took that to be something religious, being that I wish there was a treaty. I wish, you know, the whole concept of, of course, the covenant, you know, with God, but yeah. it's not exactly something that you know too much in modern times. It's something that you read about. It's something that's there in the Bible, but it's something that no one else could. Like, it, from your day-to-day life, you don't always feel like he's there by your side speaking right. to you. In other words, it almost is like he'd put his cards on the table if there were some signs, you yeah. know, but that he doesn't see them. That's what I took it as. Or I, I do like, I do not care who takes this bloody hill. Could be a reference to the crucifixion or it could just be a reference to military conflict because that was used quite a few times, especially mm-hmm. for like World War II ideas and things like that like he does a great job of weaving some solid lyrics in this track and what i like about these lyrics also is that you get the sense of how exhausted he is the delivery and the way he delivers those lines you feel the pure exhaustion and frustration almost you know and i think that's kind of palpable even though but it doesn't i don't necessarily feel what he's feeling but i acknowledge what he's feeling i can tell what he's feeling i have a sympathy for it that's because the bulk of what we're talking about on this track is the lyrics. Yeah. And there's not enough otherwise supporting it. It's very pared down, even compared to the first track. There's the, the ambient noises and sounds and the scape we were getting in the first track. Are is not it here. here? No. We're All just we're getting, getting here. a piano, slight strings barely a rhythm that's like the bulk of what's going on yeah i maybe it has to do with the chord progressions but i was a little bit bored by this track yeah. and it's not the pace that is boring me the pace actually contributes some power to it because that helps you you know really not just decipher but digest every single word every lyric and the words themselves certainly have power but the chords kind of sappy because of course he's mixing together that you know 70s ballad style which is almost barely there in the beginning it almost feels like he's going to go in that direction but then it, you know that for that for it to be fully that i feel like it has to take at least another direction but it kind of stays in the same loop yeah. as if it were a hymn which is purely intentional <laughs> but then you wonder why would the melody itself not really push forward a little bit because that's the one thing i mean you know hymns we don't talk about hymns too much or anything because all right they seem pretty much like they have a very specific purpose but the one thing they can really give you is a melody i have a little anecdote to this because this is something that i was kind of on my mind as i was listening to this album is it feels like it's something that would have helped at times because there's a lutheran church not too far from me and it's uh it has these church bells that are have over the years been in various states of disrepair and lately they got a new system and it's pretty solid system. They play at 7 p.m. every day without fail. And I suppose it's just pre-recordings of various things. I can identify some are are hymns and some are classical pieces even. But if there's no other ambient noise, then it can really carry quite a distance. And if the TV's off and you're not doing anything, it can be very, very peaceful. But they played this one piece, and I knew I recognized it. I just could not think of the name. So I plucked it out in the piano, used Soundhound after I actually plugged it out in the piano. And sure enough, it was actually on Eagle's Wings, which was played actually throughout my childhood in Catholic Mass. But it's also a pretty widely known hymn because it's been featured prominently on like televised funerals and that sort. It's a pretty simple song that has been proven to move a lot of people collectively, especially at the time of death, critically. And it was composed by a pastor back in 79, And looking at the chords and the melody, the thing really could not be simpler, but it's the reaching and soaring qualities of the melody that are really tear-jerking. And I was sitting there, 
actually welling up a little bit. Kind of another victim, as it were, of a song that the pastor has himself said has really humbled him, the amount of people who've come forward to tell him how that song helped him helped them deal with the death of a loved one at a, at a critical moment. There are lots of cheesy versions of this of this hymn, but it really, I, in my opinion, is, is beautiful, and that's just the melody itself. And I think sometimes that is make or break when you have a structure like how this is structured. And the melody here just didn't have me. I think part of that, though, is because he's not singing, he's speaking, and that kind of a melody I don't think would work with him speaking. But that's the thing. I, I See, I said that was a positive in the last track, but that's because there was a little bit more going on, yeah. and I was already very impressed by the music and everything. But this, the piano is just holding back, holding back. Everything here is holding back, and maybe that's how he wants it. Of course, this is where we go into, you know, artistic defenses and all, all that sort, because if he's not necessarily moved or if he's in a state of conflict, then... Is, is if he's not moved, should we not be moved? Well, I don't know. Is there know. a sense of apathy that's intentional, maybe? Yeah. But that said, I do agree, ultimately, that the song does kind of repeat on itself a bit. Um, even though there are minor changes here and there, it's mostly a lot of the same. The starter piano doesn't stay through once the first chorus yeah. steps up, but then it stays through for the next three-ish minutes. Yeah. Well, it, it yeah. felt overall like a goodbye letter to religion itself, but it expresses some regret about it. I mean, there was another line later on, and that was, of course, I'm sorry for the ghost that I made you be. Only one of us was real, and that was me. There's regret there, but it seems like he's making himself clear where he's coming from. But he wishes, you know, there was that treaty between your love and mine, because they always said, oh, God loves you, God loves you, right? But where, where's his? Where's the return? If he doesn't see the signs, then how can you fill it out? Right, and I would equate it to a significant other in the sense that this idea that he was the only one who was real in this relationship. The other person was not you know, honest and open, and there was this kind or of... Even, or even they were pushed out. It's, it's, he made the ghost. He made that other person sort of become a non-entity in the relationship. Right. It could be taken that way as well. Yeah. Which is why I think, as much as I don't think the music supports it, this is a great poem, a great piece uh-huh. of literature. Well, that's just it. Like, if it, this was written, I think I would like it a lot more. The fact that it's spoken with this music, I feel a little bored. Yeah. That's yeah. ultimately the problem. And again, though, I don't hate it. I just think it, it's a shortcoming of framing it this way, so, intentional or not. So far, I mean, even though there have been no shortage of songs dealing with, you know, uh, faith or loss of faith and whatnot, I do think he has a very unique take on it, and I am very intrigued by his theme, his thesis. It's just the music is kind of on a, in another part of the field. So let's go to track three, On the Level. Um, so this track, we get piano again, yeah. but at a different pace, and also the vocals and guitar come in pretty quickly. It's more of a rolling, peaceful piano mm-hmm. line, alongside just like this ticking guitar. I thought it was a lullaby. Like, the yeah. piano felt yeah. almost, almost note for note to be a lullaby setup. Well, it does lullaby, but also it felt I felt gospel later on. I felt like this was a straight-up gospel track. If the last track was a hymn, then this is more toward that sort. But there's some irony here because, of course, again, I think it's more just about the fact that he has he's been he's turning away from God. So it's like he's always putting it in the style of things that would be placed, you know, under the house of God. But instead, here he it's it's all negative. Well, it's all doubt, doubt, doubt. He goes for something a little bit different in the chorus itself, where it seems to go almost doo-wop. I mean, he first off, I he, heard has, that too. he gets a gospel backup of all females to, to work with him in this chorus. 
Second, the pace picks up a little bit, and you actually get a sway back and forth where you just, you had the idea of a sway in the verses. You had an idea of, okay, maybe we're, we're kind of just bouncing back and forth, nice and easy, but here... It's approaching dance levels. It's not quite there, but it's approaching. It definitely it. had a little bit more of a pickup to it, but uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the overall use of that was. Let's read a little bit. I knew that it was wrong. I didn't have a doubt. I was dying to get back home, and you were starting out. I said I'd best be moving on. You said we have all day. You smiled at me like I was young, and it took my breath away. Your crazy fragrance all around, your secrets all in view. My lost, my lost was saying found, my don't was saying do. And that's a really nice line. But let's keep it on the level. When I walked away from you, I turned my back on the devil, turned my back on the angel too. Now actually, I take that back. This is a little bit more closer to, again, using uh, turning away from God as a metaphor for a relationship that's that's falling apart. So maybe maybe it's just the fact that it seemed so clear and apparent in the first two tracks that that was on my mind, and because this felt like a gospel track to me, you know, I just heard the lines, oh, when I turned my back on the devil, I turned my back on the angels too, and uh, basically I just was a non-entity in the whole religion in, uh, question. But no, this is seeming to be referring to you as uh, the person, the loved one. And you talked about the gospel, that line right there, when... The female gospel choir is backing him up. They sing it. They go right through with it. Right. Turn my back on the angel too. He kind of just like, he just lets it go. It just it just stutters out of him. He just he just says it at his own pace. And that's what he's doing a lot here. He's really has no adherence to a meter with his vocals on this one. He just is straight up talking, even yeah. though his voice is coming across a little bit more sing-songy, a little bit more of the inflection is is towards singing. The pacing being just almost nonchalant about it, almost just like, yeah, it's it's a boring story I'm going to tell you. It's, it's a nice juxtaposition between the two. And that choir being all females, being ringing out the angels, him just going, angels. Well, I, think I it, like the combination. No, I did like that. But, well, I think that it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, because it works for the style, but, again, this it's like he's exaggerating two aspects of what we've already said. He's exaggerating his spoken word style, and he's exaggerating the gospel aspect, which is just, again, I find it strangely ironic that really the more you read these lyrics, they don't seem to be referring to that as much as I originally thought. It's just that the musical connectivity here is pretty obvious. It feels like a song if you just replace the lyrics, you know, or e even included the same singers that you have in the background you, singing the gospel portion, it would be played in church. Yeah, I think that my biggest struggle with this song, and it's even further perpetuated in track four, which we'll get to in a minute, is that the big thing that's holding this track together for me, again, is his vocals. Instrumentally, it's not doing anything that's really kind of driving me, but I like his vocals. I've always liked Leonard Cohen's vocals. And then in track four, Leaving the Table, like, this song is much more closer to doo-wop than the previous track, and it's got that kind of swaying vibe. But besides that, it stays pretty consistent throughout, and I'm only pulled in by his vocals at all, and that's kind of not even enough by this track. Well, like I said, a column A, column B. He's yeah. exaggerated the things, and I think maybe that helps in some sense, but it also is just, the exaggeration is still an enhanced form of something you're already familiar with. Yeah, and it's really apparent here. I mean, the track starts with a bluesy kind of guitar. Which completely drops out after 15, 30 seconds. It's, it's a pretty quick loss and then we go into 
straight strum guitar, brush drum. It's a slow doo-wop. It really is. I, I wouldn't call yeah. it like one. I would call it Indeed, a You're right. That's true. Uh, the first chorus, we get an introduction with some string trembles in the second verse. Yeah, it's just a slight, horn a slight tremolo. I, I think they were horn notes start showing up or something of that sort of caliber. And that's like it. The, the track doesn't change so much. It doesn't just saunter along that sway. It doesn't change so much except for just that 50s, 60s blues guitar, which was a very new element, I think, for the album. Um, and you do kind of have a solo in that aspect. I mean, you have it. Mm. You have, it, it, it is in the intro, right? You, that's when you first hear that, like, first-generation electric guitar sound, right? But then it does make an appearance later on, and I think it does have a bit of a solo. It's It's... It's doing something, but I know it's not really binding the track together. It just felt like an added instrument. Because uh, you're right, we're only making subtle pushes into slightly different genres. Like, we already kind of said the last one sounded doo-wop. This one sounds more doo-wop, less gospel. But we're in the same ballpark. Yeah, we haven't really gone out on a limb yet with any of this sort of stuff. He hasn't he hasn't done much more than set music to poetry. You know and what? That's I, what that's what started well, I would to bother. Me. I just realized the horn that you're talking about is not is a is a single guitar. That I just is a realized guitar now? that was a guitar because I remember it was ringing out in the right ear. So we solved that problem. Okay, <laughs> not a horn. All right, not a horn. We've but, got a connection. But I would argue that the first track really did feel like more than just words over music. I felt like there was more to the whole environment of that track. But track two and three and now four, I would agree there is less scenery, there is less immersion. Like I was truly immersed in the first track and even though I saw the problems that you had, Steve, with that first track about how it did still kind of repeat on itself a little, yeah. I was so immersed in what was built that I didn't mind that. I noticed it, but I didn't mind it. Whereas in two, three, and now four, I'm not. I'm only immersed by his voice, and the rest is not supporting it. Well, one of the things that's bothering me is that the emphasis on his vocals and on his lyrical work, we're not getting a whole lot of details. And while I'm remaining sympathetic to this character that we're enjoying, to Leonard himself that we're kind of like grooving along with, I'm not getting any of the you know nice nitty gritty details that will allow me to really empathize with his situation to start putting myself in his shoes and start really feeling the emotions he's projecting here. The only empathy that I do get, I mean, the only place where I feel empathy pretty strongly is uh, the fact that his vocals are still really, really close to the ear, and then throughout the album, you feel like you're in the room with him. So even yeah. if the music is not 100% your bag, even if you're a little bit tired of the repetition, I feel like that is the thing it has going for him. There is intimacy throughout this. But then it a little bit conflicts... I mean, depending upon where you're coming from and what you want the album to be about, obviously it's not your choice. It's not our choice. It's <laughs> no, his choice. True. But there is that issue of saying, is this God? Is this a person, a relationship, or is it his career? Because this time I started thinking about that aspect. I'm leaving the table. I'm out of the game. Well, what is that? commonly referred to. I'm out of the game, you know, means like, well, not really in the business anymore. Yeah, it's not uh, a relevancy. But of course, we all love Leonard Cohen. It's not simply a matter of, you know, just saying that. If everyone is still behind you, then, you know, you could be relevant for as long as you see fit or as long as most people still know your name. But then he says, I don't know the people <laughs> in your picture frame. If I ever loved you or no, no, it's a crying shame if I ever loved you, if I know your name. So by the end of the same stanza, then I think he's talking about the relationship again. And then when he starts talking about, well, you don't need a lawyer. I'm not making a claim, then I think it's a divorce. I, I'm all over the place here. It's But that's, again, my interpretation, maybe just a little flawed. 
No, I actually would agree with a lot of this stuff. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with anything. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Because he's keeping it vague. He's keeping it where, okay, I, lawyer could be a contract that he's trying to get out of. It yeah. could be a divorce, or it could just be someone who knows the law a little bit or knows all the rules per se, and it might have something to do with religion. Once again, we don't know that. It's he's he's making this very open to interpretation. But that same even time, at the end, I don't need a lover, so blow out the flame. There, all three, all three things I just said, well, all could be snuffed out in an instant. Maybe it is all at once. But I feel like also, and we don't really have proof of that, but that's intentional. This kind of almost abstraction to it. The fact that it's non-specific is intentional to kind of maybe even keep you guessing because he's a poet. He doesn't want poetry is meant to be interpreted. It's yeah. not really meant to be. This is a thing because then there's nothing to interpret. There's no like. There's less art to it. I feel like. But why do we do this? <laughs> I, I, I want to make this little argument. Poetry being a written word, being the line by line that you, for the most part, read to yourself or see an orator read, and their inflection that they throw on that. The inflection I'm getting from him is he's right next to me. I've been hearing his life story. But these are more the interludes in the life story. I'm not actually hearing any of the events that took place. Instead, this is sort of like the transitional scenes between the really important bits, the bits I want to know. I want to know what led up to him leaving the table, which table he's leaving. And these little details, which you don't have to do much to inject that into tracks like these. There's not a whole lot you have to do in order to just... Okay, throw in a word here, maybe a name there, and boom. You have yourself a full-fledged story. I I love the voice. I love it right next to my ear. I love the personal touch that's going on where I feel like he's sitting next to me telling me this yeah. stuff. But I don't feel like I'm actually getting told anything specific. Yeah, I think it's personal because of proximity, not because of emotion. That's actually, that's a good way of putting it. Like, it feels personal because it's personal. Like, you feel like you're in the room with him. But that's about it. You don't feel uh, an intimacy based on the words he's specifically saying. Not here. So we have one big check mark on production proximity. I don't think that's ever been a uh, (laughs) a consideration in our... uh, Year in reviews. But for this album, I mean, production level is pretty astounding. It's, it's pretty very tight. well yes. designed. Yes. Very well mixed. There's also not too many things to mix together. But yes, they were well well mixed. Track five, If I Didn't Have Your Love. So this, I, I you know, I try not to summarize too often on tracks. I like to sometimes get ahead and kind of, you know, give a kind of hint to what we're going into. But here, I mean, it's really hard not to summarize this track because at its core... It's a song about life without love, but the specific love of someone. Like, if your significant other or someone you treasure more than anyone else in the world, your son, daughter, parent, whoever that love is, this is about a cold world without that love. And I think there's something inherently sweet about that that kind of sucks you in because it's coming from a very warm place. But that said, from the moment the lyrics start, I don't really get a sense of that, again, in an empathetic way. I sympathize. I understand what he's trying to convey. I just, this song isn't necessarily making me feel it, but I have more on that after John says what he wants to say. Well, I want to look at the first verse. If the sun would lose its light and we lived in endless night and there was nothing left that you could feel, that's how it would be. What my life would seem to me if I didn't have your love to make it real. That's a very powerful 
kind of like onus to put on this love. Like the sun is out if I don't feel love towards you and vice versa. The sun, the thing that all life springs from. That's a very powerful statement. I didn't feel any of that power. Well, that's it, the big issue I have. And the other strange thing is that, you know, that's a pretty big thematic shift for the album, considering that hasn't every track that we've looked at mostly been about... Kind of loss and loss, lack leaving, of direction. N- not really having the fire yeah. in him anymore, you know, for one, the other, or the other. And in this case, what would I do without it, is yeah. the message. You know, how would I live? How would I go on? And it further clouds the idea of what love he's talking about, whether it's his love and connection to religion, a person, or something else. Well, this it one could really be, feels it could like be a all person. Three. Right, it does. It, it does. It could still be God. I mean, you could still make the argument for God Let's, because of how open the love is. He never says what kind of love. A lot of nature metaphors, too. Yeah. If the stars were all unpinned and a cold and bitter wind swallowed up the world without a trace, ah, well, that's where I would be, what my life would seem to me if I couldn't lift the veil and see your face. And if no leaves were on the tree, and no water in the sea, and the break of day had nothing to reveal, that's how broken I would be, what my life would seem to me if I didn't have your love to make it real. It is a sweet message, I know. I, I <laughs> mean, for, they, for, for me, I, I think the power it. in this song is that it doesn't make me feel, but I feel like if I gave this song, for example, like if I sent the song to my wife and said, this is how I feel if you weren't in my world. I think there's there's a power in that way of conveying the message. But I agree, I agree that empathetically from him to me, I don't necessarily feel it. Yeah, I guess the thing is, again, it depends on what you wrap your emotions in. Yeah. You know, if the music we really haven't mentioned much in this track because I don't know what to say. It I, I think this track this album is trying to top itself in how thin it can really get. And the funny thing is if you look at the music and how the music has been sort of taking a steps back, steps back, steps back as we get up to track five, I it's just very strange to me that it seems to be losing energy while he has in this one instant gained a little bit of insight, you know, into what life is all about. Yeah. Or what life is worth in the end. I mean, it also could be from this perspective (laughs) that he spent most of the album to this point kind of on the negative side, and so now he's trying to add some positivity. He's trying to break from that cycle. And and things don't always break at once. Nothing always, no realization ever occurs at once. Yeah, it is a little bit odd for him to start off so dejected and just kind of wallow in, I won't say self-pity, but more of tiredness. More that he's just done. And this is the thing... That's supposed to be keeping him going after yeah. being done. Like this is this is one of those last little threads that keeps you there in your life. Yet the thing there is just kind of weak. It, the representation is so so little. It really is a thread. Well, I would argue though that the way it is connected to the album is the fact that everything before here was this kind of exhaustion and this tiredness, this you know, almost not wanting to go on. And this is the one thing that keeps him going. But he's talking about what it would be like without it, putting a ton of pressure and onus on that thing. And I think also removing himself from it. And I think that's important here because that kind of emotionally is still kind of similar to the previous thing. Yeah. This separation. And also I think that that's also very true with anyone who like had some kind of, you know, falling out with God or whatnot. You really can, I think, bring this back, even though it really does seem, you know, your love, your love, it feels so personal for like person to person. It really can be taken religious as well. You know, that's often I think what people go through when they like lose faith or something like that is like what what my life would seem to me if I didn't have your love to make it real is you still have all of those, you know, logical reasons 
sort of lining it up beforehand as to why, you know, if I only had a sign, then why, what, is there any point in continuing this? And then yet still in the end, they have trouble coping. Yeah. Some people that simply cannot do it without, you know, that that thing in their life as as more the more spiritual related things. But this apathetic epiphany that we get in track five does a lot to actually set up the following track, Traveling Light, track six. And the pickup we get right away, instead of the previous tracks where he's lamenting all of this like loss and apathy, now he's celebrating it. There's a sense of energy here that was nowhere else on the record at this point. Almost like this kind of burst of... I don't know, faith or love or whatever. Now, this isn't rock and roll with capital R's. It's still not a big jump. It still works within the theme work of the album itself. But with the Italian guitar strum that we get right away, it does a lot to at least invigorate what's been going on. It really does seem like it. Like the music has chosen this opportunity to follow suit. Like yeah. The lyrics followed suit in the last track, and the music was still holding back. And now the, the music follows in its footsteps a little bit. Um, the exuberance, again, yes, is with a very lowercase e. This is, it, it, it felt to me like I was in, an, in a nice, cool summer's night in the Mediterranean. Because it struck me in the opening few seconds like an old Italian song or something. Something traditional. In fact, yeah, there's that instrument just just strumming steadily, like a slow tremolo, but one right after the other. Uh, I believe that instrument is a bazooki, right? Uh, yes, yeah. correct. And then it does have another solo instrument this is the violin but here it has a melody and this melody was speaking to me big time because well it actually is reflecting passion for once and not just simply you know comping or laying back or providing a little bit of extra color this is a full-blown melody that is independent not something indicative of what his voice was doing or reflecting it it's its own thing and it occurs in between verses and choruses and i really enjoyed that it was extremely passionate uh, I wish it was a little bit longer, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... The, but the, it was nice. The brevity, though, I think made it feel complete to me. I feel like the fact that it wasn't as long as some other tracks on the record made it... It, it, it felt more purposeful. Like, it was more direct, almost. And the content itself, we're first off getting a lot more detail work. Like, mm-hmm. he's actually starting to set more of the scene instead of just the emotions around an idea. Yeah. But at the st- you want that brevity because the actual concept is like he's he's done he's traveling light that's that's the yeah. idea, so now he's just he's just moving on he's going forward so why drag out some some big epiphany if he's already moving forward with his yeah. life and, again? In fact, that makes a little bit more sense if you don't necessarily if you view the last track as a kind of acceptance and leaving, then of course it would make sense that that would be probably the quietest of the bunch. Yeah, where something is gone it almost drops down to a silence and now we try to rebuild we start over again my once so bright my falling star i'm running late they'll close the bar i used to play one mean guitar i guess i'm just somebody who was given up on the me and you i'm not alone i've met a few traveling light like we used to do see this brings it back to the career again but it it, it's it almost seems it seems natural at this point and doesn't seem as sad it seems like the cyclical, inevitable cycle of the artist. Right, and and what he's gone through. And I think also what I like musically that makes this kind of a little cyclical as well is there are moments where the bazooki almost feels like it has this kind of klezmer tone to it too. And I think that's just inherent of what I hear in a bazooki, not necessarily what the song is doing. Also, it's the case of when things stick in your head over the course of albums, like yeah. how you know we were following through on the religion metaphor because we really heard those references very blatantly in the early tracks. And in this case, you're... Th- 
honing in on on the cantor, which yeah. is unmistakable in Jewish references in the first track. So of course they come back here, and you know, yeah, there's similarities for sure. Um, in in, and in I the think musical it, style, it adds the exuberance too, because also like some of my favorite klezmer songs are kind of songs you dance to and that are exuberant and have high energy and. I get us, even though, of course, this is not a song you would dance to, there is definitely a sense of more exuberance and energy, like we said before a few times with a lowercase e, but I like that burst of energy. It kind of revitalizes me in the album a bit. There's also a fairly nice and steady heartbeat to this track with a, a little bit of an oomph in the drum section that keeps it moving on and. I think that made the track feel a little bit faster than it really was. Yeah, it felt like there was an emphasis on the on the second beat particularly. But yeah, it's 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 still slow, but it has motion to it. Um, and also the words were set to music, I thought, in a very basic but effortless way. Mm-hmm. And it made it just wasn't it wasn't as offbeat, for instance, as he was earlier on. A less spoken word, more direct, set the words to the notes themselves. There was also this little piece that it was so hard to hear but shows up a couple of times and that's these little electric keyboard flourishes that pop up that in between nice. and they those little touches they can simple, creep up on you simple little touches like well, yeah. three or four notes great texture for everything else that's going on well at this point also the string work was also fairly texture. It was there. It wasn't, you know, a showstopper in this track, but it it definitely added to the it, musicality. It added so much melody on top of what the vocals were doing that it, it was the first time I feel like everything was firing for a track on this album. The, the funny thing is, um, so I'm glad you brought up that electric keyboard because when I noticed that, I was like, oh, oh, that's and that's nice. That's really nice. And it reminded me of the 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 experience I had in listening to an old Beatles track, "Don't Let Me Down." And Billy Preston is actually in that. Track, mm-hmm. who for a while was the sixth Beatle, if you count George Martin as five. You have to, you have to though. You, you have, have to. to. You absolutely have to. But yeah, Billy Preston came in, in that track. He was just doing this very light comping on the keyboard in the background, and at some point at the end, he has this this awesome solo, mm-hmm. right? And it's even though this is just pared down a little bit, when I when I really honed in on the keyboard, it was almost like that same experience yeah. because it's just such a nice tone as as a comping instrument. And I think this is like a strong moment that kind of gets the album rolling in a different way for me. Because when we go to track seven, it seemed the better way. We get violin from the start that really kind of does the same thing for me that the strummy guitar did in the last track. And I'm a sucker for strings. This is not a secret to anybody who's listened to this show. But especially this violin here kind of hit me in a way that all of the instrumentation hadn't before. Yeah, the only other thing that I really liked about this was the choir pairing with it, yeah. because that was, again, we haven't gotten too much full-blown choir since the very beginning, and this was in the very same tone as the beginning. Not so much like, let's say, the, the gospel stuff that we got a couple tracks later, but it was that pairing between the choir and the violin and these certain chords that they were on that I really, really liked. I think the chord progression here is this dark and somber uh, sort of dirge. It actually reminded me of the Firebird Suite by Stravinsky, uh, second to last movement, I think. You can find a really, really great version of him conducting it when he was an old man in the 60s, which is another actually kind of brings me back to this, because it's like a, a person sort of signing off his career with one of his magnum opuses. And uh, it, it's a dark, dark moment. I really, really thought this reflected it, except it doesn't go anywhere. It's the same chord progression over and over for the duration of the track. And I was a little bit down on this track the first time I listened to it, because... I was expecting it to pretty much do what a lot of the other tracks had done, which is find a place, settle there, and just try to let the words speak for themselves, so to say. But I did notice something as we go through the track 
that it was reminding me of that first one, You Want It Darker. It was building up a lot of ambience that was missing from so many other pieces on this album. And as, you know, the real low-key beat steps in and the bass jumps in, the bongos that show up around the second verse, all these things actually start building on top of one another and, and, and do something to really raise it up back towards that that first song we heard. It was particularly the violin. I, this my favorite moment here was probably the violin that came in later to to restate these sort of longing, painful soliloquies. And I, I, I do wish then again, like the last track, I wish they were a little bit longer. I wish they were as long as they were longing, but it, they were still very enjoyable. And those are probably my favorite elements. But I do agree. I wish I had gone a, just a step further. Yeah, I think that. The strength in this song for the first time for me was the music. Uh, the last track, too. But here, like, I didn't hone in on the lyrics immediately. I was listening to the instrumentation. I was really wrapped up in that. And I think that's really important to notice. Because even though when Leonard comes in and his vocals are still the focus, I was already in, on board with the instrumentation. So I just pulled in the lyrics, too, because I was so on board with it. I was actually a big fan of the chorus at the end of the day. I better hold my tongue. I better take my place. Lift this glass of blood. Try to say the grace. That struck me. Those lines. Like the verses, I almost glossed over. But right after that chorus is when the violins would show up. Right. And they would get nice and... They would they would kind That's of the accentuate the failure that was being experienced right here. It was That's very the painful very the painful soliloquy yeah. that I was yeah. talking about. It was a great pairing between the two, and it did a lot to hone in on what the idea was. But to one earlier point, you said uh, you could almost gloss over the verses. I don't think we should gloss over the verses because this almost seems like a throwback to religion track. Yeah. You know, it starts off. It seemed the better way when I first heard him speak. Now, granted, the the indication here in the lyrics would be the capital H, but we don't have that. But then again, remember, these, well, are, these are aggregate lyrics. It could you be know, also we don't know. hearing the pastor speak. But it did say, now it's much too late to turn the other cheek, which is, of course, uh, yeah. a Jesus reference. Um, sounded like the truth, seemed the better way, sounded like the truth, but it's not the truth today. It's a strange, like, walking the line kind of track, but it, it he seems very reluctant, going back to the lyrics that you had read, John, to actually close the book in this track where it seemed he was really done before those lines you know uh better hold my tongue better take my place lift this glass of blood try to say grace try to i guess incorporate a little bit of it you know in his life i'm not i'm not sure yeah i think that there is a strong sense of you know hesitation here and he hasn't really hesitated to say how he felt before you know he's kind of been an open book a very unspecific open book, but an open book nonetheless. But here you do get a sense of hesitation, almost like he doesn't want to fall back into what was happening early in the album. He's trying very hard to move forward. Well, also, if you go by that opening lyric, it seemed the better way when I first heard him speak that almost feels like you had some kind of revelation. Yeah. You know, some someone talked to you again? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. I do like also going back to the ambience that John mentioned. After the second verse here, we get bongos and other like percussion, which add to the overall kind of mood of this track, which track one has as well. And I like that. And I know John mentioned it earlier. I, it feels cyclical in that nature, too, because we are relating back to the first track. This is the one area where I'm going to disagree. Like, I felt nothing when those bongos were added. They were just a thing. They were just, yeah. They were they just were, a thing. They were additional texture, I didn't, I didn't feel cyclical pattern. I didn't feel like it was, ah, a new piece of texture. Mmm, bongos, nice taste. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I felt that specifically, but... 
I continued to feel a connection to the first track that was already in this track. All right. I also want to propose one final theory on what the words mean. Because I, I saw this uh, when we were listening, and I wanted to bring it up. Because it, he's still being opake if you look hard enough. Which is weird. You're looking harder at the words, but they're becoming less clear. Look more at the opaque. <laughs> I better hold my tongue. I better take my place. He's not talking to someone specifically, and he has to be in a specific location. Meaning he's fulfilling a role. Lift this glass of blood. Try to say the grace. Maybe he's just sitting around at the dinner table not being mad at somebody out in the open. Maybe yeah, somebody yeah, across the table is upsetting him. Doesn't matter who. It's just a he. It could be it could be father, child, friend, somebody, somebody who's replacing him maybe. Maybe the love he lost earlier now has somebody else. No, nope, like, I agree. It, could be, I, I, it can be a lot of different things. I, I still like how open to interpretation everything is. After you look at these lyrics and you have something else on on the brain at that moment, then yeah, they could really be taken in that direction as well. There's one stanza in this track that is conspicuously not like the others. And it says, I wonder what it was. I wonder what it meant. First he touched on love. Then he touched on death. It Okay, if we're going to talk I about, what that means. <laughs> about somebody speaking the truth, going back to the pastor or priest or something like that, maybe it's just maybe it's just a homily or something like that that upset him, or a message of God it being injected into his life he did not enjoy and did not really find to be good. Maybe he's being a little bit disenfranchised about that. Yeah, that one. Put, or, that's the only stanza that really pushes me back to the religion, though. But or. <laughs> Uh, maybe this gentleman was just shooting his mouth and was really just not not talking about wholesome things. If you want to, first you talk about love, you, then you talk about death. Maybe he's two faced. Maybe he's hmm. he's two sided and you know saying one thing but meaning something else, and is a little bit of a faker. <laughs> Especially because the truth is sort of a lie in this track. Like you, I could do I could do more than one. I can I can come up with another reason. I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this with this oh, album. <laughs> all right, all right. Track <laughs> Steer your way. Um, well, all right. This at least, uh, I, the tail end of this track really is pushing the arrangement aspect a lot forward. I assume that is also the work of his son. And it's good stuff here. You actually have a steel, a steel string guitar and also a nylon guitar working in tandem, which was kind of nice. But it's, it's quite beautiful, although still a very slow track. It's kind of just this one and two and with these violin accents enter, entering in on the and of every single beat. So one and, two and. And the rest is still pretty basic just just the, the the guitars but then you really wake up when the violins actually shine through and kind of dominate dominate in quotes here <laughs> because they dominate with the, this this hard to miss hard to ignore uh run of 16th notes this very smooth back and forth between like a b and a c sharp right at the top end of a c sharp minor chord where everything else the strings and all that is holding down uh the the, the chord itself but then that one violin just one violin very flat, very plain, like I said, quote-unquote dominates here because it seems like it would be such a background uh, little soundbite in any other capacity, in any other context. But here it comes forward and like just gets the spotlight as it goes back and forth between that B and that C sharp. And it was really quite nice. 
believe that were in the notes, but <laughs> it was definitely a, a, a minor seventh chord. And it, when it goes down to the B, if that's actually what uh, it was on, then that's the seventh. And you really feel the, 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 some tension here. For the first time in this album, I feel tension instead of just kind of a, a veneer of misery. It was really interesting to see a more Mediterranean-influenced string section that kind of evolved into folk Americana style. That was what was so so touching about that transition. Yeah, and I think that's because it was the mixing of, well, the lack of mixing in this case, of the violin itself. You know, there's nothing else, there's nothing going on there, and because it's so simple, you almost feel like, eh, that's more some fiddle work. That's not violin work, that's a fiddle there. But it feels could have like, gone that direction. It feels like the violin is almost has a split personality because the fiddle and the violin feel very separate yet well mixed. But they feel very much their own sound. And also, I mean, like I said earlier in the review, I'm a sucker for strings, but here they really shine, and I'm really wrapped up in it. Also, we neglected to mention at the beginning, but this was originally a poem that was premiered in the New Yorker in June of this year. That said, I think it's important to bring up because we've talked a lot about his poetry, but this really does feel like a song. Like, the poetry of the lyrics is great, but I love the melody here. I love the whole construction of the song that I'm not just going, oh, it's good poetry and good music. It's, it's, it's a, a good, good song. song. Yeah, yeah, it's finally, finally on this album, the best bridge between the two. This is, I don't know if it's this or Traveling Light that's going to be my favorite at the end of the day. But I'm actually leaning more towards this because some of the words that are coming up right here, steer your way past the ruins of the altar and the mall, steer your way through the fables of creation and the fall, steer your way past the palaces that rise above the rot year by year, month by month, day by day. Thought by thought. And it's right that, at that moment that we get that little violin. Da, 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 the da, way, da, 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 beautiful. But the, but the words, year, month, day, thought. The 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 de-evolution that's going on right here. The the singular moment that he's honing in on, and the way he uses it, he he frames those ideas differently as we go along. Uh, later on, and please don't make me go there, though there be a god or not, year by year, and then to, down to thought by thought. It's 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 just the way this one line can get rephrased over and over again and have just different meaning as he goes through these verses. Well, at least I mean we've been we've been asking him to get more specific the yes. entire album, and he finally just got there. We still don't know again if that's the only aspect of this album, but it really does seem to be one of the big ones. Please don't make me go there, though there be a god or not, year by year, month by month, day by day, thought by thought. And it it's it's. It is the steer your way, find your way in the thick of it all. The, the, the end of the day, we all have to kind of make these own judgments for ourselves. And I guess he's simply encouraging us to think about it, which is why, I, again, I, I am really glad that I hear the tension in this track because I hear, I hear musically the, in, the internal debate actually taking place. And it seemed earlier it was all these various states of denial or feeling settled or having an answer that he's not sure is right, but it's he, he's kind of settled to think of it in his in his old age, to think of it in a certain way, because that's just, well, where he's accustomed to at a certain point. And now he's actually talking about a kind of active search. Well, because the previous tracks had a kind of sedentary nature to it, whereas this moves and you get a sense of movement from it, this 
this kind of idea that even though there's that tension, I feel like there's also the release in this song too. It's not just the tension. And I think the violin carries a lot of both the tension and the release, depending on what it's doing at a particular moment in this track. Well, it's also a beautiful way to show growth as a human being. Yeah. You know, steer your heart past the truth that you believed in yesterday. That's that sums it up right there. Be a thinking human being, you know. Yeah. Don't be complacent. Which sometimes feels like a lot to ask in in, in modern society. Yeah. But at the same time, this like growth is kind of one-sided because the other individuals, may it be God or the masses or the loved one or what have you. The way this track ends, they whisper still the injured stones, the blunted mountains weep. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make things cheap. And say the mea culpa, which you gradually forgot, year by year, month by month, day by day, thought by thought. Like... That's it's a what pretty I'm powerful ending. Yeah, yeah that's like throwing a, throw a little d- dig at uh, at uh, capitalism in here a little bit. Yeah. A little bit of this, a little bit. That's why I say masses. Now we're even hitting masses being well, I did, the subject. I did wonder when he started off. You know, the opening line: "Steer your way past the ruins of the altar and the mall." I was yeah. like, "What in the mall? Does he really mean the mall? Does he mean he the d- mall like on the boulevard?" You know, he does. I I would think so. And of course, that was a big well. That's a big portion of of Christianity, anyway. Yeah. Is is, is you know, there's that that the story of Jesus going in and sort of turning over the tables uh, because people were were money changing in yeah. the temple or something like that. And here he says the ruins of the altar and the mall, as if you know to go back to the Christmas, put the Christ back in Christmas and all that because I think commercialism has just taken over everything. Although it's interesting that he the ruins of the altar and the mall, if you take that to be you know just the place where you buy all your stuff, is he actually saying the ruins implied ruins of the mall or that the mall is actually still there in to replace the altar i'm not entirely sure if you think that it's actually the ruins of the mall as well then maybe that's fallen as well and or, people or, don't give a crap about anything <laughs> it's nihilism the next line the fables of creation and the fall first saying that creationism and the, the concept that we were made in god's image is a fable and that the fall it, it, being a part of that or that the fall itself, like, we didn't fall. We, that itself is a lie. That we never became this sinned creature itself. You could take that in two ways. Each of these lines here, you can take multiple ways. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. That's the creation and the fall. Whether whether yeah, they're actually a part of a pair. The creation, the fall as a pair, the actual book of Genesis. Because that's the, the fall of man and all that. Or whether it's actually just a separate thing that's 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 really interesting if he if he thought about this stuff from line to line the poetry in this in this album is really pretty exceptional yeah no i would absolutely agree i mean there's no denying the poetry in this record for sure and i would dare to say that it was all intentional i i would feel very confident saying that he's been doing it for a long time yeah Yeah. he's got some skills but the last thing i really liked although was that and say the mea culpa which you gradually forgot year by year yeah month by month day by day thought by thought which is always that, like, hey, I screwed up, mea culpa, mea culpa. You could say that to anybody about yeah. anything and not actually be held accountable to it. Right. I like the frivolous use of that word. All right, track nine, the final track, which is a string reprise of the song Treaty, which features some lyrics towards the end. I mean, this is probably the most perfect way to end this record. I honestly have no criticism for it as a conclusion. I think that... As far as closing this record that we got, it's perfect. 
the complaints that we have with Treaty and how kind of just moving along it was, well, they took the basic line of that piano, the pace, the plotting piano, and turned it into a string section with so much breath to it that I just, I, I fell in love with it. I would actually say that it's less that they borrowed from the piano back in the track treaty but they borrowed from his vocals it's yeah. the strings are actually reworking his vocal melody in treaty and that's what you hear now just in the strings and they're reworking it gorgeously i mm. mean it's actually not until quite deep into this track where you actually get new lyrics from him a, yeah. a, an actual reprise of yeah. lyrics in treaty i wish there was a treaty we could sign it's over now the water and the wine we were broken then but now we're borderline and i wish there was a treaty i wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. And those are new lyrics. That's not repeated from the previous version of Treaty. It's just inspired which is, by... Well, it's why it's a reprise. Um, but here's the thing about this song. There's no denying how beautiful it was. It is absolutely stunning. But this brought to light a problem that I felt throughout a good chunk of the album. The song Treaty was a beautiful song, but it didn't really necessarily make me feel anything. I didn't well up, I didn't get emotional, but the string reprise of it took a melody that existed in his vocals and enhanced it and made me feel I got choked up. I felt deeply in this version. And it shows to me that the problem is not necessarily his lyrics. The problem aren't isn't necessarily that the poetry isn't solid enough. It's that the music is lacking on a lot of places. And this track makes it stark. But that said, it wouldn't be so stark if the f for this track if the previous track wasn't a little more void. I think the power of this final reprise on Treaty is enhanced by the fact that the original Treaty was more numb. And so I don't even know if I can hold it against it, but it definitely brings it to light for sure. That's a good point, but yeah. I, 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 yeah. So for a brief moment, you actually felt what I felt when I heard on eagle's wings in the distance, you know, yeah. on church bells. It, yeah. Maybe sometimes it is just context, and if the context here is indeed the fact that you heard a song earlier and you heard him in a state of of apathy. Yeah. A lot of this is despair and apathy, and later on there is a shred of hope. There's a shred of and, and that hope is accompanied by complexity because the story of humanity should be trying to actively think about these things from one moment to the next and not just taking every moment for granted, which seems to be the final message here. We were broken then, but now we're borderline. What an interesting victory that is. The victory is to be on the fence. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, as, as, as a moderate person in most aspects of my life, I, I appreciate that so much. But I would argue, to something that Matt just said, that treaty earlier was supposed to be stark because you don't have a treaty between loved ones, all right? You have a union. You have a combination. You have a, a coming together. A treaty is just a cessation of hostilities. Here, you feel those hostilities gone. That numbness, that sort of distancing of oneself is gone here because now he's diving into that string section. He's diving into the emotions that are associated with that, with the love. The love is really trying to do something more, and that's being showcased with those strings. So as much as, well, the music in a lot of places, like on Treaty, was a little bit gl gluster, 
I would say that I give him credit for setting up something like this as a finale. As you said, was a solid finale to this album, yep. which only was, it was under 40 minutes. This is a very short album, um, which I guess doesn't say too much at any one point, but instead goes for a pan approach, for an everybody approach, for a non-committal approach. Here, we're really getting commitment. We're really getting... Uh, sort of an investment of the character in the music itself. It's like a gymnast who otherwise had a really, really bad like experience, like really didn't do well at the Olympics, but she stuck the landing on the last thing. I wouldn't say she did bad here. I would say she did okay. No medals, definitely not standing up on the podium, but we're not talking, you know, bottom of the pack. Yeah. She, she did okay. All right, well... She at least ended okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I guess that's where we're coming from. And uh, you know what? That may seem like a really weak moral to most people, but I think it means a lot, especially in today's society. I think it's good to at least consider things as you go about your life. Does that help the album as a whole? Uh, I guess we're going to go into our wrap-up here. I I really, I guess I'll start off negative <laughs> rather than end positive and do what he did in my own wrap-up. I, unfortunately, for the vast majority of this album, was more bored than I wanted to be. I don't often start off wrap-ups that way, but let's face it. I have this little thing lately with, uh... I'm not gonna say the word minimalism here, right? But there are... There is a minimal approach to many of the tracks here. Because it's a weakened state. It's a case of a person being, in some sense, the end of his rope, whether that relates, relates to his life or relates to love or relates to his uh, relationship with God. Then it's just all about not really feeling it anymore. And, well, that's hard for me to feel it when he doesn't feel it. And I think he wanted it that way. But boy, is it really tough to get through in the beginning, because it does strike me as a lot of just courtesy usage of all these things that he is not really terribly invested in. Yeah, it's a hymn. Just in the broad. A hymn. It's a gospel track. Just in the broad. Gospel. With some doo-wop blues leanings, even just then. Blues, you know, when he brings back that sound, that guitar we've heard in recording after recording after recording, which is nice as a soundbite, but it also is just like what you think of when you think of 50s blues. It doesn't really even commit to that 100%. It's an album that is largely built out of a lack of commitment Except for moments. It did have a very strong start because it at least uses the first track to set the stage for you. You have the... I feel like there are a lot of hints there that say, yeah, this is going to be about religion. There are other things too, but I think that is kind of the big thing in the end. And he does say it somewhat explicitly later. And he doesn't say anything else explicitly. So, uh, yeah, all those times we said that it could be about three things or two things or whatever, maybe it really is just about one thing in the end, because that's about all we can get. And those metaphors are heavy-handed and frequent. So... That's what you have to be mulling about as you go through this album. And if you don't think about those things, I think you're going to have a really rough time of it. I think you're going to think, well, this guy's voice is pretty deep. (laughs) You're just going to sort of think about that as an overall aspect of the music without really thinking about it as as an enhancer, as 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 an element to its credit. Until you realize that it really does relate to religion pretty heavily in the end. And then you have to... I guess empathize. If you've never been in this position, then try to put yourself there as best you can. Granted, there is a very generalized quality about this, but you know what? Generalized, not everyone really has had these issues. Some people have 
Um, some people have never doubted, never doubted at all. They just, they've committed, they never miss church on Sunday or whatever temple you, you go to. And then there are other people there, it's never really been a consideration, never believed to begin with, so really no conflict there. But this is an album about a person with conflict, with conflict in a lot of aspects, it seems. Uh, you have to at least try to put yourself there in order to enjoy it. Because musically, and I did try to enjoy it musically separately, and I really couldn't until key moments. Key moments that occurred very, very late in this album, when the violin started getting interesting and not just being there. That's when this album really had me. When we had phenomenal interludes and really passionate reprises. Um, I loved the mixing. I loved the approach. I just wish even then it had gone a little bit further. The only track where this goes balls to the wall is the last track because it is essentially a string quartet. And the, you wouldn't expect that you'd get a string quartet on this album if it wasn't for the fact that, of course, you have the title, String Reprise. But it, it really is pretty mind-blowing. It's this whole neoclassical piece which just almost feels like it didn't belong if it weren't for those stray threads of strings that have been peppered throughout the album but nowhere near utilized to this extent um so it does tie together in the end just you have to you have to think a little bit outside the box you have to think a little bit abstract in order to get it and i guess i i'm i'm sitting here debating whether or not that really does make up for it in some sense the the theme certainly dictated the music perhaps a little more than I wanted it to I feel the music should have and there should have been some trade-off there you know you have an idea in your head now let's make some interesting music to reflect it I know that's been done you don't necessarily have to go as minimal as it does it's just a little problem I'm having with a lot of albums lately is there's this consistent push to go less 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 hoping that that will somehow amount to more and the more that seems to be the case, the less it really seems to be true to me. If I'm going to be impacted, it tends to be a result of uh, maybe more labor than I saw in the early to middle and majority, unfortunately, in, in this uh, album. That whole segment there just could have been bulked up a little bit to still achieve, I believe, the same exact point that he that he so expertly conveyed at the very end. So to me, this, this just this can't quite be a four despite the awesome message i think i have to bring this down a little bit to a, a 3.75 there's just not as many tracks here that i enjoy in thorough except perhaps the very last track that's it's not enough for me for for, for a four but it's a great message and everyone should learn from it so high threes three seven five all right for me Here's the thing. I'm actually starting to understand something that Steve and John experienced with uh, Stranger to Stranger by Paul Simon. Episode 207. You know, you guys talked about how much you love Paul Simon's work and how you felt that there was not enough originality or just not enough stuff to bring you in. And I think that's what I'm experiencing with Leonard here, ultimately, is that a lot of it blends together for me. There are moments of individuality that come out of his lyrics or the story, which I can point to the same thing Paul Simon did. The only difference is I at least got wrapped up in what he was doing. Not necessarily because it was better music, but just because it happened to connect to me more. Here, I don't agree with Steve's point about the early part of the record. I think one and two are strong tracks, and I think I was well wrapped up in those tracks. However, three, four, and five are just this void in the middle of the record. And then when Traveling Light comes, I get wrapped back up into it to bring me into the finale. You know, Steve said a lot about 
what I wanted to touch on as far as structure of the record and the emotional that we're supposed to feel and where what headspace we need to be in. I think, you know, ultimately I like a lot of these tracks, but it just doesn't go to that next place. You know, I can't disagree that track two does tend to repeat on itself. Three, four, and five do completely bleed together for me, except for the poetry, which, truth be told, I don't even remember that strongly. Um, you know, I'm still a fan of his vocals. I'm still a fan of his poetry. But honestly, if this were a book, I might enjoy it more. Just because the words were some of the most important things to me here. So with that, I don't know that I needed the music to feel what the words were conveying. You know, Traveling Light and Track 7, it seemed to be a better way, even all the way through the end of the album, to Track 8, Steal Your Way. Those songs were definitely enhanced by the music, but I don't think that those songs would have been any less, to me, of an impact if I just had the words to read. Because ultimately we came back to the words and I felt more when John would read them, Mercy would read them. And that's a big hole for me. Um, he's consistent, you know, his vocals are absolutely consistent, he's got that gravelly voice that I love, and, you know, he even changes up the pace of it a little bit, or does the cool harmonizing that we talked about where he just staggers behind or ahead of the other vocalist in the background. All interesting things, but ultimately I don't know that I would go back to this album, and I for sure don't think it's his strongest work. I think that it's got a lot of the old tricks, which is great. And, you know, more, it's kind of like what we talked about with um, Paul McCartney way back also. Like, more of Paul McCartney is always good, because Paul McCartney is really good. But if he's not changing it up, and it sounds like stuff he's already done, then technically we didn't need more Paul McCartney. And I'm not saying that about this record. I'll I actually only interrupt to say that that is not necessarily a part. Like, I'm speaking about this in the context of today's music society. Right. I think that it has had its, it has had its place in his past and i think it has had its place in the history of music it's not a question of comparing this against to his previous work which i'm not as familiar with although i know he's done stuff in this vein and actually very consistently and very beautifully but in today's society i think it's a question that i'm debating which led me to my conclusion right and that's kind of what i'm the point i'm making with the paul uh the the paul simon and the paul mccartney comparisons is that their later albums is still a lot of what they've done before and so in modern music it's kind of falling behind a bit, and I feel like this is doing it too. I think it's beautiful. Also. No, modern modern times, it's actually it's right there up with all my other critiques. I'm well, fair. It's bands that came about only last year are guilty of the exact same thing. That's true. So that is believe true. me, I'm I'm stacking him up with the big timers. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I mean, and he is a big timer. Yeah. You know, I just didn't get as much out of this as I was hoping. So ultimately, I'm similar to where Steve is, but I'm being a little kinder because I enjoyed more of the record. So for me, this is a 3.9. You know, it's it's headed to the fours, and I feel like if maybe 3, 4, and 5 were at least more like a blend of 1 and 2 and the later tracks, so I don't know quite how, but if they were, maybe there would be more to suck me into the record. But it just falls short for me. I stumbled across this album on Metacritic because I was I was looking around. I, I didn't know what to bring on. It was one of those weeks where I kind of exhausted all my weird ideas for a while. And I came across the name and I was like, oh, wow, Leonard Cohen's still alive. And I was like, oh, wow, the first four reviews on Metacritic are hundreds. Like, whoa. 
and it's still doing extremely well with reviews in general. I think it's in the mid 80s, high 80s. So for an album that we kind of said feels like it's 50-ish years old because that's how long he's been doing this stuff, that's still pretty damn good. But when I listened to it, I realized that this was actually something kind of new for me. As much as the music seems to be the same old, same old, what this album did was speak to a side of me that I haven't really experienced before. I'm agnostic, and not just in religion. I don't commit to a lot of different things, Uh, whether it's relationships, whether it's politics, unless we're talking about certain things, and I'm very liberal, whether it's um, about economics, whether anything, any sort of social issue that comes up, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm kind of on the borderline. As this album summed up, I'm, I'm right there. I'm between a lot of different things. This album portrayed being agnostic, portrayed apathy towards everything that's going on, portrayed something that was a little bit different, something I haven't quite experienced before, being noncommittal, being done with it all. Now, we've had albums where people are done with it. They're moving on and everything like this. This isn't an album of moving on. This is an album of finally releasing the cares, Finally, just going beyond, you know, worry, going beyond hatred and lust and anger and all the heavy emotions. This isn't becoming numb, though. That's that's the real curious thing. He doesn't become a disenfranchised, numb individual. He just finally says, well, I've had enough. I'm good. I'm done. So... I don't know where to go from here. And it's a very curious idea. So as I was listening to this album over the past week, I was bouncing everywhere from a 5 to a 3 to a 5 to a 3. I didn't know where to put this album. I knew it was something I was thoroughly enjoying, but it was a hard thing to pin down on. And while I'll definitely agree the music itself is not amazing, it fits the theme so well, I can't fault it too much for that aspect. And while I usually say my fives and my upper echelons are something that's doing something new with music, that's pushing something forward, usually on the musical side or the lyrical side or the vocal side or something like that, conceptually this did that, just that. It did push forward a new idea into the realm of what music is. So while I'm not five, I'm not four and a half even, I'm definitely leaning a lot more favorably with this album than these two fine young gentlemen are doing, and I'm giving it a 425. It really is an, a great album at the end of the day, and something I'm, I feel better for experiencing, because I feel like while I'm not empathizing with every little aspect that's showing up with, with what Leonard's saying... I am wholly sympathetic with it. I'm wholly there. I can understand where he's coming from. And while I would have loved the stories, the interludes that I feel like we got right here, for the most part, the track three, four, five, or even to some extent track two, Treaty. I wasn't fully on board with Treaty. I feel like I can weave great stories in between these songs. So for that, I, I feel like this has just been a great experience for me. I guess it's a big question. Does theme in the end, you know, trump music? 
I mean, yeah, I I think something even kind of more fine-tuned than that is I think a lot of the struggle that me and Steve were having that and John... And I was having. I was And that you were having a little bit is that... I'm still struggling. <laughs> I'm doing what he's telling me to do. <laughs> is the fact that we all said that we more or less sympathized with this record and the emotion. We didn't empathize. And I think that stems from kind of how he keeps most of the lyrics pretty general. He's not... It's not a specific instance you go, I had that experience. It's personal to me. Yeah, I'm special. It's more uh, inclusive and uh, accessible. And is that a good thing or not? I mean, if you want to talk about accessibility, we, we talked about uh, themes in Judaism, themes in Christianity. I mean, there were even references to the way of Buddhism that showed up in a couple of lines and other things. This is a pantheistic religious album. It's spiritual. It's not religious. It's spiritual. And I make fun of people that don't commit to a religion and just say they're spiritual. And I make fun of them in a tongue-in-cheek kind of a way because, all right, you're going to borrow from Shintoism and Buddhism and, <laughs> and Christianity and Judaism and Islam. If you're going to borrow from religions, then you're just trying to make stuff up it's as you walking go walking hodgepodge of cultural appropriation. <laughs> but at the same time, individuals like that I have a lot of respect for because essentially at the end of the day, they live by what every religion promotes, and that is – the golden rule, do unto others. That is the core of every religion that is around these days, or every major religion. Yeah, I, religion. I, I make fun, but of course, yeah, they're they're at least keeping their mind open. They're at least saying, hey, someone on the other side of the world probably thought of, you know, advice that amounts to the same thing that we might have come up with or whatever. And living to the golden rule is something that is, is great, but it also, while it accepts everybody and the golden rule itself does let everybody live in peace and harmony. At the same time, it's not really enough for most people. You still need to to get, you know, rights and you still need to have rules and you still need to have regalia. I'm going with an R theme right now. I've noticed. And that is still applies to music itself. I mean, we wanted some detail work. And like I said, I could weave a story around these tracks, but this track, this album is not a story in and of itself. It doesn't have the meat and potatoes to really go the distance and make me feel experiences, make me feel the settings and the characters and everything like that it's, because it doesn't have those details. It's one man's mind, and it could be played in either direction in many ways. But what I wonder is... Is that versatility a good thing or a bad thing? You know, the idea that I, as someone who listens to music very emotionally, as we all do, I think, in different ways, but for me, when I get wrapped up in the emotion of a song, it's usually specific details. It's not necessarily this, I'm in love and I love people. Like, it's got to be more than that. And I do think there's hints of that. Like, in this album, as an example, you know, there, there are songs like, If I Didn't Have Your Love, to me, is specific enough that I can convey romance with it, but it doesn't make me feel romantic. Hmm. And I think that's a big difference. And I think it's because it's too broad. It's broad enough that if I wanted to, say, share it with my wife, it's broad enough that I can go, here's a song that represents what I'm feeling if I were without you. But for me personally, I can't listen to this song and go, oh, well, this is exactly how I feel, period. Well, all right, generality is a strange thing because, again, some people... It, it, it depends actually on how people's grammatical structure works in their head, I think. Because sometimes you can say something that to one person you hear as, they hear it as a mass cliche. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's been said a million times. There's nothing moving in that to me. There's nothing persuasive. 
because of the way something is phrased. But then you hear something else that was on the same record, which I, I uh, mentioned earlier, steer your heart past the truth that you believed in yesterday. And I heard those words, and I was like, that's a beautiful way to phrase it. Mm. I said that was that's something that actually does speak to me, because it almost feels, it's not necessarily my turn of phrase, it's not how I might say something, but might be how I might start saying it from now on. Right. Like, it affects you in such a way that it'll actually change how you approach a certain thing. Steer your, your heart past the truth that you believed in yesterday, as if it was a kind of obstacle course, you know, yeah. that you had to constantly just veer left, veer right, and and uh, the gas is always down because life is moving along, so you don't have the luxury necessarily of just stop and be like, nah, I'm going to stay here now. I'm going to believe this for the next 10 years, regardless of all evidence that is, yeah. you know, stacked up in, in your in your face. That's, it's I think a, it's a great message. It's advising against stagnation, about sitting and settling, and I agree too. I think that I think that, I mean, ultimately, of course, as usual, we'll probably get to a place where <laughs> they're like... both important. But <laughs> before we get to that point, because I think it is it is important in this moment to, to, to note what Steve's talking about. I think that's a very specific turn of phrase. Where there are vagaries throughout this record, that, that specific line is not vague. It's on point, and it's telling you... It's a mantra, so to speak, and I think that's very palpably powerful. <laughs> well, okay, but then again, when you start getting specific, even if you don't directly connect to the specifics of these stories or something like that, uh, like one of my favorite tracks by the Decemberists is The Rake Song, which is about a widower who starts killing off his kids, hmm. which is like a weird concept for a a song, but it works within the context of the album beautifully. Well, and the it's track not that itself, weird for them. Yeah, it's not weird <laughs> for them. And the track itself is so, so rousing. I have to sing along, even though it's terrible themes and terrible ideas, just so eloquently portrayed and everything like that. Well, there's nothing I, generalized. Not there's nothing generalized about anything Colin Mulloy writes. It's yeah. just his turn of phrase. But it's such a specific it. thing. I feel it. I feel so energy. Filled, I feel well, yeah. so happy listening to such a terrible idea. Well, I actually have a similar thing with John. So I recently DJed a Halloween show for um, Wasabasco and for the theme shows I put together theme playlist. So obviously I made a Halloween playlist. And obviously I, as someone who listens to a variety of stuff, it's not your run-of-the-mill um, Halloween playlist. There's no Monster Mash to be found. However, one of the songs on that playlist is a song that also the Wasties cover that I love by the Decembers, Shankill Butchers. Oh. Which is a very haunting and Halloween-y song. Well, yeah. And that's one of those songs also where it's, if you listen to those lyrics and listen to that song, it's terrifying. But... I love that song, and it doesn't make me uncomfortable, and it doesn't make me afraid. I enjoy it, and I think it's because, but I think it's because I can distance myself from it, because it is a story, because I am not personally relating to it. It's a story that's about someone else that I seek enjoyment in, even though it's about a terrible thing. But as much as I like specific songs and the way they portray, what my favorite song, probably of all time, if it's not, it's always in the top three, is probably the most pan of songs you could think of. Here comes the sun. I love that, and it's it the best Beatles me. song. It, that's my it, vote for best Beatles song. Yeah, there's Just not saying. a whole lot of. Steve's argument. already shaking I, I his veto, head. Veto, veto. That's fine. We'll have this argument on another episode. Okay. Yeah, but it's already two against one. Um, <laughs> here comes the sun. You're both wrong. Boils down to it's all right. Yeah. What is it? 
Well, it, it is what matter. was what you thought was wrong. It's just all right. That simple idea is like paradigm shifting, and it's universal. Like everyone has an it, whatever it is, and you can just apply it into that moment. And I think that's really a beautiful thing. The whole idea. Here comes the sun. The ice is melting. It's been years since we've experienced this song. It's all right. Like, you don't get less specific very often than a track <laughs> like that. Yet, I, I'm not alone in, in saying that a track like that, a concept like that, can be more moving than, than anything you could ever experience. I yeah. know people who agree with me. And, Steve, I still know that that's one of the better Beatles songs as well. I, I know you agree with that. Sure, it's somewhere in there. But here's the thing. I think that... Also, you have to consider music. You know, music, there are also generalities. It's not simply a matter of message. It's not a matter of like, ah, yes, something immoral that we should all know, but maybe sometimes it depends on how you say it. Well, with music, the generalities in this case come down to little patterns that we get into. Patterns that have been clearly proven to make a difference over the course of time. In some sense, they've been put through the ringer. A lot of just genre formats and and the kinds of things that you might learn, chord progressions that you might learn in a particular genre as being the basic way to approach a certain thing. Or the the blues scale, just learning to solo along that before you start learning various other scales and how, you know, many many jazz artists slowly branch out into the world and become more proficient at their instrument. They still sometimes often at the end of the day say, hey, I love me some blues. (laughs) And they just are, they're satisfied, they're content to do that. Clearly, that's mass appeal right there. Never quite worked for me as much. I was never as big into the blues as I was into some other things. So some people just skip straight over that. But I, I guess, who knows? Maybe I, the same thing could be applied to the hymn. Yeah. You know, that's what Mike. I, I had the opposite experience concerning that, as my earlier anecdote clearly. Eagle's Wings. I can't believe that I didn't even recognize that when I first heard it because it's just been played everywhere. Yeah. You know, and there is that little hipster in all of us that likes to say, "Well, if it." It's played everywhere, then it's not really for me, you know, or that little part of ourselves that I think wants to distance ourselves from the pack. I've heard a lot of people say this. It's not just doesn't come down to being hipster. Sometimes it really does come down to individuality. People like yeah. to feel unique at the end of the of day. Of course. So that's a big argument, I think, against generality is when things are marketed, generalized to an audience, then, yeah, people don't really feel that that emotional welling up. They don't feel like it's connecting that to them on a, on, a, on a deep, deep level. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But a lot of times I think it's more like that is 100% specific to me, which means it's a, the way an artist phrased something in a way that is unique to that artist, right, that I'm connecting with that maybe has not even been felt this way before, you know? You, people like to feel like they're inventing new emotions. Maybe... Maybe we all are, and maybe none of us are at the same exact time. The brain is a really, really weird thing. No, yeah, and I think that you bring up a good point with the music generalities, too. I mean, (coughs) talking about, you know, mass appeal, think about a lot of pop music. I mean, let's take Lady Gaga as an example. We always come back to pop music. Well, but, but, (laughs) so hear me out. First of all, Lady Gaga is someone we've often talked about as someone who seems to be towards the front of the pack as far as making pop music. But... Think about the kind of audience that typically, at least when she first started, she had, which was, you know, think about the the teeny bopper and and that kind of mass appeal. Yet all of them feel very deeply to the point of crying at concerts. But the music is not marketed for just that person. It's marketed for a huge audience. 
but you can't deny the power that that music has for that person. Sacrifice well, the one for the many. I mean, I mean, I maybe it's a little bit of that. I mean, maybe. certainly that's the logic that a lot of uh, producers probably go into it with. Yeah. They they take a, a basic melody that a songwriter wrote, you know, with uh, which could go in either direction at this point. Like, all they have is the melody, and they're like, all right, you got some good words here. You got you got a nice melody. Now we can turn this into who knows. We yeah. could bring in a, a, a string quartet, right? We yeah. could turn it into that, and we could really go go all out with this. Or we could just you know put some beats to it, and maybe that'll actually get more of an audience. And and I just want to say one thing about the teeny boppers, young kids. You got to remember both psychologically and biologically. Kids feel emotions a lot more strongly, especially adolescents than adults do. Only because so, they're feeling I mean, it for the first time. Yeah, exactly. kind of a, True, and also and they're not as jaded as older people Well, are. it's also the, just the imbalance <laughs> of hormones that are going on right there. So marketing emotional ideas to adolescents, teenagers, and things like that is ideal because... It's well, powerful for well, them. It's it's a little bit. goes a long way. Right. That's what's great about it. Anyway, You could also argue, topic. though, that they're mar- marketing it to em- emotionally immature adults, though, then. No, yes. Yeah. That's, that, that's also true. I think, like, com- <laughs> complex music exists for people who've already experienced one thing, and now they can't get enough of it. They want to go down the rabbit hole. Right. But there's some people that just aren't... They're nowhere near that rabbit hole. Then they look at that, and that's just alien to them. Yeah, but also I would say I don't even I don't even know if it's emotional immature adults, but nece- but maybe uh, emotionally sensitive adults, people who feel deeply like a child does. True, and then you and, could say, well, then well, then people are governed more by nostalgia than anything else, yeah. and maybe that's the strong emotion that it you're could feeling be too. Sure, which actually was part of it, I think. You know, concerning hearing that that hymn on Eagles yeah. Wings, because I I remember hearing that every single Sunday when I was younger, right? Yeah. And I heard it, and I it, sometimes a lot of hymns just wash over you, and they're like, that was pretty forgettable. That yeah. was pretty forgettable. <laughs> but then this one, I always remember being like, oh, when there when church was out and we. We were all leaving. I was like, I'm going to stay a minute longer. I want to hear the end of this. Yeah. I want to hear that organist finish. If you're going back to your childhood, sometimes it's just hard to forget a memory like that. Yeah, I think that uh, kind of wrapping up on this, when you relate something to something from your past, it tends to be more powerful because of that nostalgia factor. And also, that's personal to you. It's your own past. And I think that's, that's a big driving point, too. So as a generalized and obviously incorrect statement, uh, mass appeal songs are great for children and specific songs are great for old people. No, no I don't like coming to yeah, conclusions I, 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 at the end of I our topic. it was incorrect. No. We're gonna move on right from that well, and just no, ignore Matt, it. Matt usually sums up. I usually yeah, but my, I when I sum up, it makes sense and is applicable. Well, that's why I prefaced it with incorrect. Now you sum up safely, also way too safe. That's true, yeah. but I mean that leads to the mass appeal part too. I went on a branch. Branch cracked. I fell. It hurt. Gravity. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, before we get into what we're doing next week, which Steve is going to provide, why don't we do our spam there of you go, the Steve. week? You got a big segment of talking. I know it's new. This is the spam. Actually, that's true. I have the album as well as the spam. Our store with discount Mont Blanc pens saves 65% off fold special comprehensive sale. Mont Blanc pen manufacturing classic writing tools of well-known to the world. Mont Blanc pen, pen name represent the art of writing. The design is simple and smooth, compact and elegant, become a new symbol of modern popular culture. Discount Mont Blanc pens for sale. What's a Mont Blanc Discount Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc is a a company. Okay. And they make uh, luxury items. Watches, pens, jewelry. They're white pens. 
They're white pens? That's what blanc is in French. Yes. Mount, the pens Mount white. Are they're, white. They're, Mount white pl- pens. So they're white pens. So how do you use them on they're paper? They're not white pens. The company name is Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc watches. They're not all white watches. Is Never that mind. the tallest mountain in Europe? I don't know. Probably not. No, it's probably not that. Not to be confused with Matt LeBlanc. This is not the same. <laughs> Terrible segue. Um, uh, did anybody I'll, I'll catch who... See, and see, John said that, but I wanted to make the joke before he said that. Did anybody catch the name of the company? Because I don't think I got it from that, considering every other word was Mont Blanc. No. Well, it's actually one word, so it's not... It's two words. It. No, no, no. It's one word, the company, so it's not... No, it's no, not. It's, it's two one words. word. You don't they even... typed it as one word. Yeah, but you it's didn't... one word. But you didn't even know the company existed, so you don't know well, what I didn't it know is. what Mont meant... But I should have seen it to Why be Why am I arguing with It's him. a portmanteau. I don't know. We're no, letting this really. go on forever, and Way I'm loving long. it. Portmanteau so. is the beginning of one word and the end of another. This is just two words. Let's go to the album. Uh, Eno yeah, please, by Second you. Relation. That is what we're doing. Eno by Second Relation. They have only a thousand something likes on Facebook. They're not very well known over here, but right. maybe they're a lot more known in so Austria. So the album is called Eno. Yes, the album is called Eno. And actually, I, I was... Any relation to Brian Eno? All right. When I first looked that up, I was like, "We're not going to be doing a Brian Eno album, are we?" Because well, not that that's like taboo or anything. No, but I, I love was, Brian Eno. I was interesting. Like, did he just cut out the Brian and did he become Eno? And I then I looked closer and was like, "That has nothing to do with it." But I did wonder why this band Second Relation would actually name their album Eno. Yeah. Because it strikes me that they would kind of get lost in you know those top google searches yeah but maybe they but, weren't thinking of Brian i mean maybe Eno. but maybe they're yeah maybe i mean the word eno probably means right. something second relation may not be big in the u.s maybe brian eno is nothing in austria maybe he's got got no leg to stand on I in austria that. i find that hard to believe <laughs> anyway okay well i'm looking forward to taking that on austrian prog uh well i mean i liked when you brought us you know british prog so sure uh, you know why not more prog austrian prog Whatever he brought us, Prague British is Prague. popular everywhere. Yeah, but that's a, Prague knows no borders. I think this is the, no. I think this is the first time we're actually going to Austria. Maybe, although the words are actually in English. I find it strange that they would set the the uh, music to English lyrics. I mean, so which not necessarily may go strange. One way or the other. Yeah, well, I I believe that comes back to the marketing thing. I think yeah. some people think if they're if they're written in English, then it's going to end up being more popular because of just the Anglophile world that we live in, and the people spend more money here in the U.S. I don't know. I don't know if that's the reason, but eh, I don't Dye know how tribes, I feel about it. Not necessary. At least now we don't have to get mangled translations that are wholly inaccurate and everything like that. That we then get criticized for online, either on Facebook or somewhere else. Kind of like baby metal. I don't know if they're online either, though. Yeah, I don't know like, if they're online. You might not find them. Anyway. It's okay. All right. So on that note, remember, as always, we love to sign off with, from the bottom of our hearts, music, music is life and life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.